you heard about the preacher who dreamt he was preaching and he woke up and it was true. Um, <laughs> that's just saying I'm a little bit tired. That's no, good. Been a great day with you guys. I uh, really enjoyed the conversations. And what I want to do now, um, for the time we have, we've got about 45 all up, but I want to do some Q&A on the back of this morning, if people have got questions or comments as well. Wisdom, because I've sort of roamed the room a little bit and had wise comments about some of the things I said today. And then what we'll do, we'll do that for about 10 minutes, then I'm going to pray, read some of 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to look at our second issue that is raised, cultural issue that we're dealing with, that perhaps is a little, uh, a little not so much pointed, but it kind of gets under the radar a little bit for us as Christians, I think. And so we'll look at something like that. So uh, did people have questions from this morning or may want to make an observation about any of the things that we talked about? in uh, regards to um, just this whole issue of uh, you, you do you uh, and what that has led to in our cultural frame, especially around sexuality issues, but not just about those, but uh, where we're at in the cultural moment. Because Paul's question was a great question and uh, I didn't provide a great answer. No, it's a hard question to answer because it feels like there are so many moving parts at the moment. And I think that's where we get discombobulated. We've used that word a few times today. I use that word every day before breakfast at least six times. Um, you feel a little bit, no, how do we go forward in this? It's, it's complex. So an observation or a question or a comment would be great. Some of what you talked about is about how we deal with it individually Yeah, yeah. In the public square. That's the key, right? Is the public? It, it's a very difficult place, right? So the public square uh, issue is so, you, and you see this with governments, uh, progressive governments. So you can do what you want in your church. You can preach how you like. We're not going to come and impinge on that, but you know, that's a private opinion. So you you realise in our secular world that we live in that facts are public, opinions are private, and religion is. An opinion. It's not a public fact in the same way that it perhaps was 500 years ago for us in the West and is for a lot of people around the world today in, in other religious traditions. A religion is just a public fact. So if you shift secularism as sort of... Secularism and the, 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 secular, the secular and the sacred used to be two planets that revolved around each other that kept each other in check and balanced each other out. There was The, the church had secular orders... They had sacred orders. That was if you were going to be a priest in the, or, or a nun or a monk. And then you had the secular orders for life in the, in the square. But that's kind of lost. We've lost that idea. And so the public square is the place where a lot of this takes. You get a lot of heat. The, the, the thing I've thought about in the last few years is that if you go into the public square as a Christian expecting that it's a home game, you're going to, you're going to struggle. All right. You've got to go into it thinking it's probably an away game now. And you know the difference between a home game and an away game? I'm an Arsenal supporter, which is great this season. And I'm, that's it, I'm out of here. No. Um, got cancelled, just like that. Um, and if, if a team, if Manchester, come, Manchester United comes down to the Emirates Stadium to play against Arsenal, 
we go to watch the match and you stand on the table in the pub with two points. I don't do that. Like, someone like Paul would do that. Not me. I wouldn't do that. Because um, it's a home game. And you can sort of in your face it a little bit. And that stance is, this is a home game. You're on our territory. We're calling the shots. But if we go up to Manchester to play against Manchester United, as an Arsenal sort of, you, you know, you drink your beer and the thing, and then you walk to the ground, and you sit in that cage section which says, away fans, right? <laughs> Christians haven't realised how much of an away game it is for them in the moment. So what happens is we come across screechy, give us our rights. And they go, well, you had them for years and you, it didn't work. You know, that's what you're going to get. So Christianity now is hoping that it's got a seat at the table, but they're no longer as far up the table as they were because other voices are given the same weight. And if you can't, that, that's a hard one to manage. The, the interesting thing is I, I, I think our secular culture is very, it doesn't know how to be plural. It doesn't know how to allow other voices in the public square in a way that have weight. And secularism is what uh, Charles Taylor, who wrote a book called A Secular Age, said it's a subtraction story. Here's what that means. The secular modern way of the West is that all the religious stories and ideologies are just dogmas that are laid over the top of bedrock reality. And if you can strip all those dogmas away, you'll get true, the core truth of what life's about, and that's us, secularism. <laughs> and not realising that secular... So if you subtract all that, you get reality. But secularism is itself is a story, and that's its story. <laughs> but it doesn't recognise that its story has got lots of presuppositions as well underneath. So in apologetics, sometimes we are coming at situations with... Uh, we're, we're asking questions sometimes that people aren't... We're answering questions that people aren't asking as much. Now, some people still ask questions, but I, I say it this way. The dinosaur question isn't being... is extinct, right? No-one's saying, well, are you Christians kosher? Well, are you scientific enough? Do you believe in dinosaurs? Hey, we're the dinosaurs now, right? Um, 40, 50 years ago, it was the dinosaur question, I think, and now it's the, uh, it's the, can people live the way they wish to live if they join your group? Christianity is about, not is it true, though that is, comes up, but is it good, and therefore is it livable? And people want to start with a livable question and work backwards. Could I imagine myself becoming a Christian and work that backwards to, if that is livable, then it might be good and therefore true. But they start with livable. And that's why. And we've got all our guns pointed down at true. And they're going, figure that one out first. And I'll work backwards. That's a mind shift. Um, just, it just is. <laughs> and, that's, and that's where we're right, I think. Is there another question? Ooh. Who was it? It was you. Yeah. And then Simon. Yeah, that's a good point. No, I don't. Simon's can answer that for you next week because it's very complex. No. Um, yeah, everyone's going to say... I mean, that's been said for a couple of hundred years. It's, it's, we're at the thin end of the wedge on that at the moment. 
I think one of the things you want to say is that the story of the Bible made Western culture understandable. It's, it's a story of a God who is intimately involved with his creation, but not part of it. And that came into a world in which the gods were part of the creation as well as the gods. And modern science has arisen from the fact that God, that God put things in motion that you could look at and presume and assume that they would happen again tomorrow because Zeus isn't angry at someone else and screws the whole thing up and throws it out and starts doing something different. So science is based on a moral, ordered universe that the Bible teaches about. Now, that doesn't say whether necessarily whether the Bible's outdated, but about those things. But one of the questions that isn't being asked in our culture isn't about what a human is, it's what a human is for. And people are struggling to answer what a human is for. And I'd say, okay, it might be a, a rubbish gospel, but it's better than your rubbish gospel because, you know, it's not answering the questions because you scratch the surface of some of those issues and people don't have the what is a human for question sorted out very well. Um, but it's not as if you go back to the Bible on sexuality, etc., and everyone in the pagan world was living very sort of, a, uh, sort of conservative lives. The most out there Wiccan high priestess of paganism who gets in a time machine in the 21st century and ends up in first century Rome would come back shaking and scared and realising how Christian they were in their thinking framework. So the Bible has shaped all of your understanding about human rights, all of your understanding about there's a great age coming. There's, there's a so the progressive narrative of we're going to jettison all the Christian stuff because there's a golden age coming when we're going to get it all right. That's based on there's a golden age coming because Jesus, you know, you just take Jesus out of the picture, you've got this golden age. But Roman Greek culture did not think there was a golden age coming. The golden age was behind you with the gods and the heroes in the past. And Eastern philosophy doesn't think there's a golden age coming. It just thinks it's launder, rinse, repeat, right? <laughs> That's what it is. So people who are non-Christian are non-Christian in a kind of a Christian way today. And I think you want to start at the bedrock level of why people think the Bible is irrelevant and show that even the way they ask those questions shows that they're steeped in its story. I think that's a sneaky way of doing it. One more, Simon. You happy to leave yours? Was it too complex? Or was it too radical? And they, you know, are you up for re-employment? No. Well, the problem with social media is there's a swarm mentality if you get something wrong, right? And then you're, they pick over your carcass pretty quickly. You have to be really smart to operate in the social media space because guess what? Just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're smarter than everyone else. I had to learn that. Um, and people are really smart on social media. 
and the medium is the message. How that medium works will shape how you come across in that medium. And I think you can come across in winsome, I use that word carefully, winsome ways, but there's always going to be someone who's out to take you down. You just, you notice it on... T I, I watch Twitter, but I rarely use it because it's just so... It's just... People just... It just spirals down a rabbit hole, right? But you can do things really well on social media that I think raise questions about who we are and why we are. And you can say things that are quite strong things. And you, oh, the other thing I think you can do is you can be the court jester in the public square. And the court jester gets away with a lot of stuff in the king's court that other people will get their heads cut off for, right? Because his role is to point out the folly. And who are the people in our culture at the moment that can say things about the sexual agenda and identity issues that we couldn't? Chris Rock, Ricky Gervais, it's the comedians because they're saying things that are transgressive, but the rules of engagement in comedy is, is kind of different. But I don't think you'd try to be either Christian Ricky Gervais or anything, that would just... Yeah. <laughs> but there's a sense in which they're showing that the emperor has no clothes, and if you can do that in a, a slightly you know, cheeky way as a Christian, but I, I didn't, there's nothing in the Bible about here's how to be cheeky for Jesus, I, it's not there, so I think we're supposed to be sober-minded more than anything else. <laughs> You, yeah, you, 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 you're going to have a rope tied around your leg so you get dragged back in if it mucks, because it's that dangerous, right? <laughs> but you do need to be both of those things. And Yeah, that's right. Yeah, mo <laughs> most of us think we're brilliant and funny when we press send, and then five minutes later we're scrambling to retrieve ourselves, right? That's what it is. We'll leave it at that, and we can do some questions at the end, but I'll, um, I'm going to do a Bible reading. If we've got uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I'm going to read verses 1 to 22, but we're just going to concentrate on one verse again and uh, sort of spin off that a little bit. What I did this morning was talk about one of the, the big cultural moments that, could, you know, that we're facing, and, today I want to look at, and tonight I want to look at one that's a little bit more subtle, I think. Here's God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers... I've got my ESV here, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptised into Moses. Oh, we go. It's up here. Um, they're all baptised into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble. That's interesting, isn't it? Big sin, big sin, big sin, grumble. You go, wow. Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination or the end of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you do not fall, that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, 
flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for you all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Did not those who ate the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? When you mention idols in the 21st century Western world, that does not have a lot of traction, right? But I want to unpack what we mean by idolatry and what's going on in this as we look at the good life in this age. I didn't come to Bustleton for my last holiday. I've come for a lot of holidays to Bustleton, but this year we went local. We live in Bassendine, and it's far enough away from the ocean to say anywhere on the ocean will be good for a holiday, so we went to Mindari. We got a swanky house in Mindari, uh, houses and places that never existed 30-odd years ago when I um, started dating my wife, who lived up that direction, and her street was the last street of suburbia in um, Ocean Reef Road. And it's like, after that was just the, the badlands. <laughs> and now it's Mindari, Mindari Keys. And it's, it was very impressive. The house was amazing. It was, uh, the place was amazing. The boardwalk, the, if you can't see it, but around the corner there's, a, there's the breweries and the restaurants and the cafes and, and very expensive. It looks like somewhere on... Costa del Sol, doesn't it, you know? And we were out somewhere on Sunday evening eating and I just looked around and I looked at... and I, I said to Jill, no one here is interested in anything to do with Jesus and they're having a great time. And they're not even angry about Jesus. They just don't give a rip. They just don't care. If you think everyone's placarding against Christians going down the street about our views on sexuality, that's not true. They just don't care. And it felt like the life that Australians want to craft themselves is a Mindari marina life, right? And you know how the marina, it was built and there's seas out there to the west and beyond that bit of that sort of headland of stones that you can see there. And they built this marina and it's beautiful in there. The boats are massive, the houses are amazing, and everyone's living a Mandari marina life. Except for the fact that the back door with the, of the place we were staying looked onto this, this is from our apartment where we were staying. But you know, for the whole week, I could hardly open the front door without it smashing into my face because the wind was so strong and the waves on the other side of that, those rocks that have been built there pounded every day. It was not a beach weather week at all. So you have two, very, two things going on in Mindari. You've got these huge waves and this, the, this wind howling and then you have a crafted life of ease over here. And most Westerners' lives are lived in the hope that they can live a Mindari life 
in Mundari Marina life as long as possible and that the reality of the wind and waves stay away for as long as possible and we ignore it. The only problem, of course, is every now and then a storm or a tsunami or a giant wave comes into your life and washes your Mindari Marina life away. But most Australians live in the hope that this stays like that for as long as it can. That is our biggest challenge. That is our biggest challenge as Christians. You know why? Because that's what we want as well. <laughs> okay? That's what we want as well. We don't want a steaming pile of evil for our lives. We can tut-tut at World Pride and Ernst and Young's sign that says we want a world full of pride. But a Mindari marina life, for as long as possible, there's something vaguely Christian about that in our minds, I think. And Paul comes into this passage dealing with the things that we can't see that could take us away from Jesus. And I ask that question to people. What do you think would be the thing that would make you stop following Jesus? What would be the thing that would make you be overthrown in the wilderness? Because it says here, I do not want you... We like to think that well, that's the old covenant. But Paul just takes that story and he brings it over to 1 Corinthians and says, I do not want you to be unaware. Why does he not want them to be unaware? This is what our forefathers did. They ate the same thing, they ate the spiritual food, the spiritual rock, and that was Christ. Nevertheless, they didn't make it. They fell in the wilderness. And why did they fall in the wilderness? Because they were idolaters, <laughs> primarily, and their idolatry will unpack in a minute. But I've got to the age and stage where I will say to people, what would it be that would stop you finishing the race for Jesus. And there's always something. And it could be a good thing, not necessarily an awful thing. I, I bumped into someone who lives down this way now, and I knew him quite well when he was working in a bookshop, Christian bookshop, and he was very strong about everything theological. And this is maybe a long time ago now, maybe 15 years I bumped into him. And I, in the city, in Perth, uh, just walking along the mall. I said, hey, how are you going? I haven't seen you in ages. He's, a, he's a, maybe 15, 20 years older than I am. 15 years older, he said, yeah, how are you going? And he'd been a good Bible. In fact, the churches that he was going to, he went to our church, but it wasn't hard and light enough for him. And he went somewhere else. And I said, so out of the blue, I asked him the question, are you still following Jesus? I mean, why would you ask someone 15 years older than you, who ostensibly is a Christian, that was, you know, that's the God moment there, are you, do you still follow Jesus? And you know what he said? No. What? But you were the guy. You were the Christian bookshop guy. He said, I just, I read too much. I read a lot of stuff about other things and I just don't believe anymore. Thought, wow. How did that happen? He's a good upstanding citizen. He isn't doing anything crazy. And he fell in the wilderness, <laughs> so to speak. It, it's a sobering thing. And Paul writes these words, doesn't he? Now, these things happen to them as an example, but they are written for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages have come, 1 Corinthians 11, 
10 verse 11. These things happened as examples, but they were written down for our instructions on whom the ends of the ages have come. The Old Testament people of God were an example to the people who have had the ends of the ages come. And do you know what Paul says? Don't fall in the wilderness like them. And here's the example. And you go, well, it's okay. I'm signed, sealed and delivered in the new covenant. And Paul, Paul didn't write that. He said, take heed. Take heed. And as you know, as you read the book of Hebrews, that those who had the promises of God in the Old Testament, when they disobeyed, as they did in this chapter, it's about the same story, the wrath of God was very strong upon them. And the book of Hebrews says, how much more if we ignore a great salvation? See, they had a good salvation. That's a pretty good salvation, taken out of Egypt, through the waters, in the promised land. That's a pretty good salvation. And Paul says, uh, the writer of Hebrews says, you've got a great salvation. Keep going. It's not the only time he says these things were happened to them as an example, because he says it again in verse, in, previously in verse 6. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. That we might not desire evil as they did. And what you see as you unpack the story of the Bible is that what the Old Testament talks about as idolatry, when it switches to the New Testament... It's more about evil desires. It's all about the thing. It switches. It's a category. It's the same thing. But you can't say to someone in this culture, oh, you, you know, you're just an idolater. But people follow their desires. <laughs> and he says, do not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And I don't assume that was five-a-side football, right? So something's going on. The idolatrous worship they do leads them to behave in certain ways. Huge thing happening. Now, there's a great book by a Melbourne... His English guy lives in Melbourne. He's an academic, and he um, goes to Mentone Baptist. If anyone's read Murray Campbell's blog, uh, it's a great blog, and Murray, he goes to Murray's church. But in his book biblical critical theory, he talks about idolatry in the modern world. And he says, the prohibition of graven images in the Bible, which you're never going to do, I assume most of you, if not all of you, do not have a graven image in your house somewhere that you have to put a, a tablecloth over when the pastor comes around, right? <laughs> we used to do that with the television in Northern Ireland, you know, hide the television. So, the pastor's here, you know, it's not hard to tell you. No. You laugh. It's traumatic. But he says this, the prohibition of graven images can be paraphrased as do not adopt towards any object the attitude that you should adopt to God. And basically all he's saying is when you take a created thing and give it the weight beyond what it is, should have, you know you're in idolatry territory right there. And most of our idols are things that we can't see. We don't read them as idols. We don't see that that is our idol. And that's the problem with idolatry. When Tim Keller did a series on, you know, cheekily, the seven deadly sins, 
uh, at his church, his wife Kathy said, the one least attended will be on greed. Because when you're in New York, right, you could have a million, $2 million apartment in New York and still think you're doing it tough. Because you're, you're looking up. No, you're not looking down. It's the things that we are blind to that are most likely the things that are going to be our idols. And I think Westerners and West Australians... Because I, I had not... I went into Bustleton today and there was no Ernst & Young 30-foot skyscraper with pride colours in it. The pathways, which I walked in Sydney, which were covered in rainbow colours absolutely everywhere, didn't see any of those. But the good life... The good life is just as likely to take you away from Jesus as the bad life. The good life. I have struggled in ministry with people who turn up once every three weeks, who have a, crafted a life for their children which is so busy that it doesn't involve anything to do with church, or very rarely. Because if you wake up in the gutter, sort of, where are my pants, and there's a needle in your arm, you know you're not kicking goals, right? But if you wake up, if you're just living every day for yourself and you, your family's so busy and all over the place that somehow church gets thinned down, the community of God's people gets thinned down, the good life is just as likely to take your children away because you've discipled them into the fact that if you do these things, that is where you're going to find your satisfaction and your significance. And I think that's our biggest problem. Chris Watkin goes on to say this, the object is not idolatrous. The scriptures tell us that God has created all good things and for, you know, to, to be used by us and enjoyed. The attitude is, namely, relating to anything apart from God in the way that we should relate to God alone, or we might say, godding that thing. See, that's what idolatry is. It's godding something that isn't God. And that's always a good time to pause and reflect, what am I godding? What, are the, what, is the op- what chances do I have? What, what, what things in my life have a likelihood that I have godded it? What, and you'll know that, you'll know the answer to that by if you don't get it or it's taken away from you, how do you respond? That's a critical issue when it comes to idolatry, that you respond in such a way that is, you're devastated. You can't cope without that thing. I kind of think the good life is a little bit like that for Australians. It just feels that way. How we responded during COVID was interesting. That when our borders were shut, the biggest thing of Western Australia is we get to live this lifestyle by ourselves in this gilded cage. There was kind of a smugness to that because we've got a marina life while everyone out there is getting a tsunami and a, and a storm. Western Australia became our Mindari marina. And I think that's where we struggle most as Christians. And these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And you go, it's hardly evil. Well, you know what? Once you've got it, it's evil. Those green boots of mine. (laughs) You know? But that's how we operate. We, 
John Calvin said the human heart is an idle factory. It just keeps producing idols. You can think of this conveyor belt production line, they're just all falling off at the end, you know? That's the human heart. That's what we are like. And so often in church we think if we can just sort out what we believe and we can, t- we can think really clearly about things, then we're home and hosed. But here's what Rory Shiner said in a recent article that he wrote. We're not being outthought by our secular culture. We're being out-discipled. Remember what I said this morning, that the, the cultural frame we live in is discipling. It's a discipleship program, and it's discipling us very well indeed. And so what we tend to do is we think, if I can think harder about Christianity and I can just do that and read, that somehow we'll have that. I think going forward in the next 30 years, the Church of God has to reach discipleship community that it's a counter to what's going on out there. Now let me encourage you, I think it is, in broken ways, because we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And... I think we've got the opportunity to form the kind of community that just looks very different to the world. But it means we'll have to ungod some things that we've godded. And do you know what that is? Painful. Because it means you have to die to yourself, right? And I've sp- shared this with you, a few of you today, that I'm hope- I was hoping that at the end of the year that my wife and son and maybe my daughter and myself would move to Sydney um, for my job, because it's going to be a little easier, and Sydney's a great place to live. Uh, Bustleton's great too, but, you know. Um, and the rest of the family's come to the conclusion that maybe we shouldn't do that next year. And I responded with such gospel grace, it was unbelievable. No. Because <laughs> I'd godded it, right? I had godded it. And the easiest place to God it, I've found, is in ministry. And this, anyone involved in a ministry role in a church will know it. Because when it struggles, you'll find out whether the God of the church is your God or the, <laughs> the church is your God. And I, I, I str- it's like a church plant that I had sort of died off. And I, I had... All these years I've served and slaved for you and you've not given me a young church that I might celebrate with my friends, you know. There's an older brother right there. I was like, if, oh my goodness, I put it in... That's, I godded it. And the role of God's people together is to gently and carefully call out our idolatries. Because the social media, Instagram picture will say, you don't need to hang around people who don't affirm you. Or... Don't hang around the negative people in your life. Except Jesus did exactly that, right? And died on a cross for the most negative people. The ones who were, you know, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. So forming ourselves into Christian communities to gently call out our own idolatries is a great idea. Because it won't happen otherwise. And it's the slow path away to dying in the wilderness that is most concerning for me as I look at Christians at at my age. I mean, that guy was my age then, and he'd be 70 now, and I kind of wanted to say, you've only got 20 years left, keep going, you know? (laughs) But I've only got 20 years left. Yet I have friends and peers who are leaving Jesus behind. And that is... 
because somehow Mindari marina life that they had crafted in their mind that if I could just have that, if I could get rid of that and get that instead, that would just make it exactly what I want. And I have an identical twin brother, right? So people say to me, can you imagine, and he's not a Christian, can you imagine what your non-Christian version of yourself is like? I say, yeah, it looks pretty good, actually. It's like a great house, you know. No, it's like, wow, that's what it looks like when you do that. And he started life off ostensibly as a Christian and he will fall in the wilderness unless he repents. It's a huge issue. Rory says we're not being outthought by our secular culture, we're being out-discipled. And this lady, who's a great writer, Tara Isabella Burton, New York Times bestseller, became a Christian in 2018, 2017 maybe, and she said this, the moral communities we create around ourselves, this is a moral community, the church, increasingly share the same value on which we predicate our decision-making, the idea that self-fulfilment is the surest avenue to the ultimate good. So if you want to believe that, you find the people who will affirm that for you. And if you don't want to believe that, if you want to say that is not what truly being fulfilled is about, then come to a church that's cruciform, that's cross-shaped, where every day you've got to get up and die to yourself. Jesus didn't say anything about self-expression or self-fulfillment, but he did say a lot about self-denial. And I wrote this in my book. All of us are immersed in a highly effective discipleship program offered by our culture Monday through Saturday. In everything from our phones to Netflix to advertising and news items, we're being offered a discipleship program that invites us to a completely different way of life, mediated to us through a dazzling array of imagery, sounds, stories and suggestions. We don't need to go to Babylon. We carry it around in our back pocket. That's how our idolatries work. They just do. And it's a, it's a sobering story that we don't think we're like the Corinthian church that was going down to the marketplace and worshipping an idol and Paul just unpacks those things as our desires the things that we God, that we could not do without. And if God took it from us, we would be enraged or despairing. And you know what he tends to do is gently take things away from us to test those theories, right? That's because you don't want to fall in the wilderness. We belong to the new age. We belong to the age to come. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the ends of the ages has come. I put this, in response, our church gatherings on Sundays must offer discipleship programs that are deeper, richer, and more compelling than that offered by the culture. As God's people, we are tasked with laundering one discipleship program out of ourselves before we can even begin to launder the gospel discipleship program in. And that isn't just about Sunday morning. That's about the community of God's people here in Bustleton, at your church, living life together in such a deep, rich, thick way that you started to disciple each other in such a way that as people God things, that you can gently speak into their lives to say, not that, have you thought about that? Have you seen the trajectory that would take you on? 
And that is a very, very different way of living life. That's not a turn up on Sunday thing. That's a full immersion discipleship program because you're trying to counter another full immersion discipleship program. (laughs) Yes, life's busy in the 21st century as we get further along, but that's exactly the time that Christians kind of need to double down and say, actually, we're going to preference the people of God because they're the ones who are going to speak into my life to call out my idolatries that I can't see. I, I guess the encouragement is that when we belong to the age to come, when we are God's people, we don't have to despair about it because there's a, there's, a, there's a way of escape. It's in the passage, isn't it? Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Is there anything more sobering in your life than thinking you stood solid in an area of life and you fell? There's nothing. So it says, take heed. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The word endurance, it's such a key word in the Bible. It's getting to the end. Now, I'm a runner, and runners tell you they're runners. And vegans tell you they're vegans, so vegan runners are insufferable. But anyway. <laughs> but often I run for a long time, and I, I just, and I'm running a long run. I sort of kind of picture in my mind, I'm going to keep going, and I kind of picture the image from Pilgrim's Progress of the, the celestial city, that I want to run to the end and reach the celestial city, that I want to get there, and I want to lay aside every weight and every sin that so easily entangles and run that race. Because Jesus ran the race before us. Why can Jesus enable us to get through these temptations? Because he, it says, there's no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And what did God the Son become in order? He became a man for us. It's not like God said, we need to sort out this thing. Pop down there at the age of 30 and getting a cross tomorrow. Jesus lived the perfect life that led to the cross so that we could have the great exchange of his righteousness for us, his right life and our sin he takes on and bears it. And God is faithful. So it does feel a little bit like it's not easy because we all want a Mindari Marina life and it's a slippery slope. But God is faithful. God is faithful and he's given us a people to help us de-God the things in our lives that are not God's and to ask each other what would it look like to deny self a little bit in a world that's all about self-expression because one day the waves will come, one day the storm will happen, whether that's sickness, tragedy and eventually your own death. And that's the point, that it will have been worth it to keep going to the last day. So I want to encourage us that even though this morning we looked at a big, spiky, shiny, bad kind of cultural thing, there's an underlying one that we've got to work together in light of God's grace for us, together as his people, to deal with as well. And tomorrow, 
in our session, I want to wrap up with 1 Corinthians 2 about how it all feels like, you know, where's the church going to end up? Like 30 years' time, there's a book that says, not does the church have a future, but does the future have a church? It feels a little bit tenuous at times. Chapter 2 gives us hope in that, and we'll look at that tomorrow. I'm going to pray. It's late-ish, and we'll leave it at that, and we can do some questions in the morning. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave us the Old Testament to show the framework and pattern that you were setting up as Jesus comes and fulfills everything in the Old Testament. We thank you that these things are written down as an example upon us, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Help us to be sobered by this, but not despair. The ends of the ages have come upon us and we have the power of your Holy Spirit. Please help us to repent of the things that we have godded. Help us to love each other enough to share those with each other and point them out. Help us to be gentle and full of grace as we do that so that we might be a community that is discipled well, that is discipled in a thick, deep, deep, rich way and that forms itself around King Jesus and his word. We pray this in his name. Amen. in singing.